Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Are we in danger of experiencing another Holocaust? News reports of defaced synagogues and death threats against community centers are on the increase around the world. A rise in anti-Semitism from the right side of the political spectrum has been accompanied by a different kind of anti-Semitism from parts of the left. Why have Jews been the object of the most enduring and universal hatred in history? What is different between anti-Semitism in the past versus the kind we encounter in today's culture? How and in what forms may it be carried out in the future? These are just some of the questions that my guest Rabbi Evan Moffick addresses in his new book, First the Jews, Combating the World's Longest-Running Hate Campaign. Focusing on the events since September 11th, Moffat considers 21st century anti-Semitism and the historical pattern of discrimination to other groups that often follows. With a hopeful and collaborative tone, he suggests actions for all people of faith to combat words and actions of hate. It's a great book, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you Evan Moffat. Evan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. What a what a phenomenal uh, time to talk with so much going on and the topic of this book and to be with you. It's just wonderful. Yeah. So you've written a book about anti-Semitism, First the Jews, Combating the World's Longest Running Hate Campaign. And you also have a forthcoming podcast called The Happiness Hour. So it seems like a little bit of tension because you're kind of an upbeat guy. And you like, you know, positive psychology and things like that. And yet this is uh, not the lightest topic here, uh, anti-Semitism. <laughs> but- that's right. I mean, that, that's such a such a great observation. And I've been asking myself that question, too. Why? How could you go from writing a book on happiness to writing a book on anti-Semitism? And I think it's because my own journey when I when I became a rabbi, anti-Semitism was not an issue at all. I mean, of course, I knew the history. I knew about the Holocaust. I've studied the history of Jews in Europe and knew that it was this phenomenon still. But to actually see it and experience it and hear it as a part of daily conversation in American life was was not true at all. But over the real 13 years of my rabbinate so far, I've seen it become the central issue that my congregants talk about, that they think about, that they care about. And so I kind of felt I needed to grapple with it in order to serve my community. So I went from, you know, my 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 default position is that faith should enrich our lives and make us happier and help us live more meaningful um, existence, uh, have a more meaningful existence. But anti-Semitism is this issue that the Jewish people are facing. And I felt I had to address it. Yeah, I- I've heard that from a lot of uh, Jews in your generation, like uh, they're roughly your contemporaries say that it's almost like they grew up in a time in America, which was the golden age for Jews, almost in history. I mean, other than Israel, you you could say like, again, not that there's not anti-Semitism in American history, but, but by and large, it's been on the whole comparatively a better place for Jews than most places. Right. And I would say it still is. You know, America is very special in that regard. It, one, one of the interesting histories that I talk about in the book is that Europe was built out of Christianity, out of the church. I mean, most European countries still have state religions. And in that context, Jews were always and automatically outsiders. From the very beginning of the formation of Europe, Jews were outsiders. When America was built it was a place of total newness and freedom. The people who came to America came to escape religious persecution. And even though there was, of course, anti-Semitism, there was some religious discrimination, there wasn't the establishment church. There weren't the the bishops and the, and the whole infrastructure that governed Europe. And that made America a uniquely open and warm and welcoming place for Jews. And even almost the further west you went, the more open it was to Jews, you know, that the pioneer Jews in San Francisco and uh, what, what, you know, California, that was the freest Jewish community. So it really uh, America has been uniquely welcoming to Jews. You know, you in the conclusion of the book, I mean, not to jump to the cl- conclusion, but you have you quote this letter to this 
Newport Jewish congregation that, mm. that Washington wrote in 1790. He had visited with them, and I mean, he really, you know, he had a fondness for them, and it sounds like they for him. And he, he writes in this letter, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. That great uh, yeah. imagery from the Hebrew Bible, everybody, yeah, everybody under their own... And this is just, um, you know, in the 18th century, I mean, Washington sees Judaism and Jewishness as part of the American tapestry. It's remarkable, really remarkable. Uh, and I think Washington, interestingly, had a, a personal relationship with a Jew named Chaim Solomon, who helped essentially finance the American government during the uh, during the Revolutionary War. And I, I have a whole chapter in the book about how Jews became associated with money. It was, you know, which has been a great source of anti-Semitism, but part of it was because it was forced upon Jews by the church. But uh, this this man, Chaim Solomon, helped keep the American government afloat during the Revolutionary War. And Washington was a big believer in religious freedom. He really believed that America was going to be a place where different faiths could coexist. Uh, remarkable. I mean, probably without Washington, the kind of acceptance that Jews have had here would 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 never exist. Yeah, and yeah, you know, it's interesting. Jonah Goldberg re- recently wrote a book called "The Suicide of the West." He's yes. one of the e- editors in the National Review. I think he's just leaving the National Review now to do his own kind of project. But you know, he talks about how in that book how basically tribalism is evolutionary our default move when we're anxious and we're scared and we're fr- you know. And that that this Enlightenment liberal democratic project, which America is kind of the first country founded from scratch on those principles. This is unique in world history. And, and, and we never, we're always on the precipice of sliding back into tribalism. And I wonder if, do you think that the resurgence in anti-Semitism, and it's really interesting in your book because you, you talk about the two tracks. There's, there's a resurgence of right-wing anti-Semitism with you know, Spencer, the alt-right, mm-hmm. and the Charlottesville. But then you also chronicle that it's interesting. It almost seems like there's a kind of critique of, of the state of Israel that then bleeds into anti-Semitism on the left. And it almost becomes avant-garde and acceptable to, uh, in certain left-wing circles, to be anti It's almost an avant-garde form of discrimination. It's incredible, yes. That the, 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 the anti-Semitism is coming from both the, re- the right and the left. It used to be, probably up until really the mid-2000s, well, no, early 2000s, that anti-Semitism primarily came from the right, the David Duke, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, the Father Coughlin, the conservative movement in its early manifestations. You know, William F. Buckley famously got rid of the John Birch Society and the kind of crazy right wing uh, uh, conservative anti-Semites. He sort of got got them out of the conservative movement. Uh, and that's a familiar enemy, you know, enemy. that's a familiar source of anti-Semitism is, is the far right. But starting in the early 2000s, mainly on college campuses, there was this left wing uh, connection to say Israel is a terrorist, imperialist, awful state. And any Jew who supports Israel or has a connection to Israel is complicit in genocide and apartheid. And that was coming from the left wing. And that has just grown. Um in fact, the first person to really point it out publicly was Larry Summers when he was president of Harvard University. And he said in 2002, uh, some of it also came from September 11th, a lot of conspiracy theories around September 11th. But Larry Summers said this, th- what had once been the province of the fringes of American society has now entered the uh, academy and professors and distinguished people are engaging in what he called anti-Semitic tropes. And that really was the beginning, and it's only accelerated since then. Yeah, and this is, I think, what is probably putting this more on the radar, right? We've had this recently, the the, the congresswoman who was who had made this statement about it's all about the Benjamin's baby and, you know, Jews have so much money and influence in politics and playing on these tropes. I wonder, is it is it less detectable because... You know, you, you kind of talk about right-wing anti-Semitism, Jews know how to deal with because they've dealt with it so for so long. But this left-wing anti-Semitism, because oftentimes the people that are, it seems like, that are, uh, that kind of get, I, I, I don't know if I want to say indoctrination, but uh, that, that, that drink this in at elite universities, 
their professors seem like very open-minded, progressive, cosmopolitan people, right? So it's almost like it, it, it's more insidious because it 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 hides itself very well, right? Because if if you're a 19 year old college student, you get this liberal professor, you don't know that these are anti-Semitic tropes necessarily. Is he afraid? And so yes. it's not something that where Charlottesville, Spencer, you know, I mean, when Donald Trump says, you know, there were nice people on both sides. Look, I don't know. When I see people with anti-Semitic signs, I don't assume they're nice people. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd go to a different march, you know, like whatever my views were. But right. but but it's not the people that are propagating this stuff in elite universities, right? They don't really give off warning signals or they're not things that would say, oh, these are symbols that are true. You know, it's, it's is it that it's a little more elusive? Yes, I do. And I think that's why Summers was so interesting when he said people can be anti-Semitic in effect, if not in intent. I would say some of the people who are part of this left wing anti anti-Semitic movement, they are probably good, well-meaning people. Um, but, you know, one of the people I talk about in the book, uh, I talk about media bias towards Israel. He argues that it's unconscious that all of us see the world in a kind of way of black and white, deep down in the recesses of our brain. We, we look for a morality tale and the world needs a villain and, you know, a hero. And that, that Jews, because of how the Bible was written and interpreted over the last 2000 years, are the world's archetypal villain. So people automatically, in fact, in some ways they don't have control over it. They're, they're telling this morality tale about the world and Jews have always been sort of the evil force. So they write stories about the Middle East and unconsciously, you know, Israel's always the aggressor. That, 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 that you can tell the story of what's happening in the Middle East in so many different ways, but the way it's often told is Israel is oppressing the poor Palestinians. Uh, and uh, this this gentleman says that a lot of the reporters who who, who write about this, they don't mean to be they're, they're They see themselves as good people, but they are coming to it with these assumptions that are almost hardwired into our brains. You have this great uh, section in the book early on where you talk about 3D discrimination. I found this yes. uh, incredibly helpful. And it, this comes from um, Natan Sharansky, right? A former right. Israeli um, foreign minister um, and activist. And you said they're demonization, double standards, and delegitimization. So that these things, when you see one or all of them combined— it's it's a uh, you know you might uh, you might be you might be getting near some anti-Semitism here right, right? like so you have the, the scapegoating like you're saying Jews for you know the the, the protocols of Zion the, the the global conspiracy kind of stuff and the, the things I found most interesting too were the double standards and delegitimization where like you talk about how the uh, the Presbyterian Church which was doing was supporting the B, the boycotts the BDS stuff it called Israel an illegitimate nation and you say look there's lots of countries that uh you you know you say look i'm not saying that we can't critique israel but lots of nations uh, uh, uh you know have oppressive horrible injustice we don't say any of them don't have a right to be nations because of it right right that is that is the strange thing about anti-semitism that it, it keeps it it, it it changes forms you know it used to be i mean that's one of the analogies i talk about in the book um is that anti-Semitism is kind of like a virus. And for a long time, religion was the source of anti-Semitism. Jews were wrong because they had killed Jesus. And if you converted to Christianity, you were no longer seen as, as, uh, as, as, as negative, as, as inferior. You were now part of the, part of the group and, and, and you weren't persecuted. But then starting in the 19th century, Judaism was seen as a race. So uh, and that's part of the influence of eugenics, Darwinism, survival of the fittest, our ethnicities. And so uh, Jews were an inferior race. And even if you converted, if you had a Jewish grandparent, you still were considered Jewish. Now, anti-Semitism, because of the state of Israel, and it's a nation state, that the, it's gone back to this religious kind of, if, if you support the idea that Jews are a people and deserving of a, of, of a, of a state, you are guilty of racism, and that the Jewish race essentially is, is, is discriminatory against others and, uh, and, and is committing human rights violations. So the, 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 the source of anti-Semitism, the justification for anti-Semitism changes in every age. And right now, 
part of it is, well, Jews aren't really a nation. They're only a religion. Yeah, that that's really interesting. One of the things, too, I mean, one of the great things about the book, I think, is you do uh, such a good histor- historical overview for for people that uh, don't know some of the history. You know, you you have this great thing. You start, you know, with, with Josephus mentioning you know, the first <laughs> anti-Semite. You go all the way into the 20th century and looking at the history in the West, which is so tied up with the, with Christianity. Uh, and yet, yet you make this fascinating point that you said there was a shift too. You talked about the shift with eugenics in the 19th century. Also, Hitler. You said it was different because what, what Christians, you know, it, it's the sort of blaming Jews for the killing of Christ and you've taken God away from us or something. But for Hitler, it was that Jews bring dignity to the world. They bring God to the world. This ethical monotheism that teaches that everybody's in the image of God kind of goes against the basic blood, soil, nation, tribalism that, that is so prevalent, you know, in early paganism and seems through world history. Mm. And Hitler wanted to go back to the ancient paganism. That's right. And Judaism really stood in the way there. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I think, and I think that this idea of a resurgent tribalism uh, is is actually is is really right on. I think we are, and and I think that's part of the reason for the increase in anti-Semitism. As the world becomes more complex and interconnected, the more we often retreat into our tribal identities to help make sense and deal with the anxiety that the world often creates, and. Our tribes, again, that's almost hardwired into people as this tribalism. I mean, jo- Jonah Goldberg makes that point that th- this is our this is our default state. And um, Jews have always stood for kind of civilization and advancement and progress. And the notion of religious pluralism and different tribes coexisting together is an advancement. And so that and that's fragile. That's very difficult to maintain. And I think in some ways, as the world becomes more complex, we're, we're defaulting to deal with that complexity back to our old habits. And I, I do see that. Um, in fact, there was a really interesting article recently. I can't remember where it was, but it said that left-wing anti-Semites, left-wing progressives are committing the same kind of sin that early Christianity did in how it saw Jews. It's it's sort of absolutizing the question of Jews. And, oh yeah, Leah 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 Lea Leibowitz. Um, it was in it was yes. in Tablet. Yeah, Leah's a friend of the show. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, that was a brilliant piece. Yeah, that this is an, an old sort of Christian heresy, an old you know. It's interesting because now post Holocaust. Uh, there's been it's it's probably the most awareness well definitely right in the history of the Christian church uh, sort of attempting to in many sectors of the church to kind of try to right the wrongs of the supersessionism that sort of the church has replaced Israel and a revisiting of this sort of uh, even in the New Testament people reading the Apostle Paul from which you know your book takes the title from the book of Romans first the Jews reading Paul in a very different way mm-hmm. which which leads to the kind of a a mitigating of that kind of replacement theology. Yes. Yes, I uh I worry about that. I worry about this 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 is actually a point made by some conservatives. I think this talk show host, I forget what his name is, but he says everybody is religious. We all seek some sort of way of understanding the universe. And even progressive secularism is a religion. Absolutely. And yeah, and 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 when it draws absolutes and it has insiders and outsiders. And I worry that on the kind of very far progressive secular left, Jews are outsiders and are villains. Um, or not not even Jews. I mean, the wrong kind of Jews, the the, the ones who support Israel. You know, there's always it, it's interesting. Um, I've anecdotally talked to some of the students in my congregation who've been on college campuses, and you know, people it, they they deliberately don't want to be activists outside as Jews because then they'll become targets for persecution. People might know they're Jewish, but as long as they kind of stay quiet and don't talk about Israel, it's no big deal. If they're actually, you know, marching and, and talking about Israel and going to see speakers from Israel, then they get targeted or, the, or they, they hear the, the, the kind of anti-Israel slurs. Yeah. And I wonder, do you, do you see this, it, you know, if, if Judaism and the Judeo-Christian sort of tradition are kind of a, a pre-runner to the Enlightenment on universalism and, 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 and sort of the anti-tribal stuff. I mean, I wonder if, like, yeah. if the populism on the left and the right are kind of uh, the enemies of both the Judeo-Christian universalizing principle and the Enlightenment universalizing principle, that those, those populisms on either the right or left 
tend to be married to some form of tribalism. Right. Well, there's a whole theory that really the earlier historical understanding of the Enlightenment was was that it was a break with religious superstition and it was anti-religious in a sense. It was it was totally humanistic and setting aside the, the old religious prejudices. But there's another way of looking at the Enlightenment that it was sort of the outgrowth of the what people call the Judeo-Christian, some people don't like that term, but the, the 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 way of looking at the universe that is based on rationality and ideas uh, and order, which are actually inherently part of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and, you know, the, the, Max Weber talked about this, that that Genesis 1 demythologizes creation, that creation unfolds in an orderly pattern. And that way of looking for order and patterns in the universe is actually inherently part of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And that's what was promoted in the Enlightenment. Yes, yeah, certainly there were parts of, of all religions that were kind of superstitious and had to be set aside, but that the Enlightenment actually grew out of a, a religious worldview and would not have been possible without religion. Yeah, and it demythologies like the sun and the moon aren't divinities right. anymore. They're just, well, God puts a, a big light and a little light in the sky. Like, you know, th these things are just objects, not uh, objects in creation, not objects of worship. Right. Yeah. I, I think I think there's a lot to that. And I do think that, uh, I mean, the Enlightenment is such an interesting question. The Enlightenment can also be seen as leading to Hitler, right? This sort of rational, disciplined worldview um, separated that, 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 that our brains and universal reason can figure things out and we don't need religion can actually lead to a kind of amoral efficiency that, you know, Germany, which was many people saw as the most enlightened country could be guilty, could, could, could commit these heinous crimes. So I think one of the lessons of that is that the, the enlightenment and our traditions, you know, Reason can't capture all things. I think neuro, today's neuroscience, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book on happiness is I'm just so interested in positive psychology and neuroscience. And one of the one of the insights they've uncovered is that most of us make our decisions based on instinct and emotions rather than reason. And then we use reason to justify it. So if you if yeah, you yeah, go, this is this is like yeah. contrary to Aristotle, right? We're not rational animals. We're rationalizing animals. Yes. Yes, if you want to get a new car and you find one that you like, you're, then you say, I'm going to get that car. And then you think, oh, yeah. And also it has good gas mileage. You know, I'm getting a great deal. It's on sale, you know. And, and then we justify what our emotions already want us to, uh, already led us to do. And so um, uh, so we, we need to recognize that in, in, in how we look at the world. And, and in a sense, one of the things that religion and faith does is sort of help guide our emotions, help build our our emotional, give us emotional language and, and character, uh, and and also give us reasons reasons to resist certain emotions and passions. And so we can't we can't I true I think that there are all you know you you don't have to be religious to be moral, and you don't have to be uh, uh you, you you know there can be great people that aren't religious at all. Of course, I mean Judaism has taught that for centuries. But I do kind of think what George Washington said is that if a society loses its religious basis, it quickly will devolve into immorality. And so that's why I think the, the enlightenment has to have, uh, uh, there have to be some religious institutions within a society in order to sustain itself. Yeah. I mean, this is T.S. Eliot gets at this and notes towards understanding of culture. He says that basically you, a culture can't take a spiritual religious vacuum that it, it will have an animating and, and, you know, he looks, I mean, he thinks that's why Christianity became uh, so, grew so quickly in antiquity, you know, and like the fourth century, because the old traditional pagan religions just didn't do it for people intellectually and spiritually. And there was a vacuum that opened up. And, you know, and, and this is why, you know, even a Marxist, right? I mean, the Stalinism stuff, it's like a secular state religion. I mean, it has this, you know, it's not it, 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 things, these, like you're saying, these, you can have the most uh, secular, progressive kind of thing. It will take on a religious tenor. That's right. That's right. It's it, it, That's how we're created. Right? You know, we're the religion. I think Maimonides, I don't know who said this. Maimonides said man is a social animal. Um, I read recently, somebody wrote, man is the meaning-seeking animal. And we, we seek meaning. And, and, the, and meaning is something absolute, something bigger than ourselves. And that's essentially religion. You know, one of the, my favorite definitions for the word spirituality, uh, spirituality is self-transcendence. 
And so we look for something bigger than ourselves. Somebody else, I just heard another, this is apropos of nothing, but somebody told me another definition of spirituality is what we do with our suffering. So that was kind of depressing. But I like spirituality is self-transcendence more, which means we're all looking for something bigger than ourselves. You have this great chapter in the book. Is Christianity still anti-Semitic? Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, is Christianity still anti-Semitic? You have a great discussion of this. And actually, in the end of the chapter, you have this very moving story about uh, a tourist scroll in a seminary. But I mean, you've been around a lot of Christians, including among evangelical Protestants, right? I mean, you've talked about these things. Uh, this is not just a, you're not, uh, you're not commenting on this from afar. I mean, this is out of your own personal experience, right? Right. You know, I would basically, and I'm happy, this is good news. I would say basically, no, it isn't. I mean, there are always pockets that are, there are certainly people who are, but in general, I think the church has become so much more aware of its Jewish roots over the last 70 years. Many Christians visit Israel. I think Israel has helped, you know, diminish anti-Semitism among the Christian community. Uh, And actually, interfaith marriage, you know, many Jews. I I spoke this morning at, um, at a church, a Catholic church, where they host a group, it's called the Union School, which are Jewish Catholic couples that are raising their kids with both religions. Now, you can people can criticize whether that's a good idea, bad idea, regardless. The, the, these these families are are doing that. And I was talking with them and I about anti-Semitism, about the book, and one of them said, you know, before we got married, no one in my family knew anyone Jewish. And now my husband's Jewish. And that has actually you know, changed how we look at Jews, how we understand Judaism and Jews. So in a way, interfaith marriage has helped diminish anti-Semitism among Christians. So in general, I'm very, uh, uh, very happy with with the relationship between Jews and Christians today. And, you know, it doesn't hurt. It helps you sell some books, right? I mean, a lot of Christians have bought your books. (laughs) Well, yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's the, the tour guide in Israel said to me, he, he's like, you know, Christian pilgrims are essentially our bread and butter. I mean, there's just a lot more Christians in the world, you know, and, and so, it, it, I mean, that, that has a downside too. In some ways, if Jews become so, if the Christian world becomes so welcoming that Jews no longer feel a need to be Jewish, I mean, we were talking about this before we got on air, is that in some ways, anti-Semitism has helped keep the Jewish people together. And Nobody wants, I mean, I, I fight anti-Semitism with every bone in my body. Uh, uh, and, and I believe that Judaism should, is a wonderful religion and a self-sustaining religion because of the truths and practices it, it, it preaches. But there are some people who, uh, who see anti-Semitism as the only thing that keeps Jews together. So if it diminishes more and we're, we're more welcome and more accepted, then we might not be around a hundred years from now. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. The, the question of intermarriage is is challenging, right? Because on one level, 
I mean, it's interesting. You open the book with this vignette that's incredibly powerful that you you are meeting with a Christian woman who's, I think her uh, her children, uh, or her daughter or son, one of her children is marrying a Jew, and she's worried about the children. And, and, and you're thinking, oh, are they going to be religious? Are they going to be spiritual? And you're comforting her. And she's like, no, I'm wondering, will it be safe for their children, for my Jewish grandchildren? And 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 this just blew you away because this is not something totally. you're generally thinking about. Like, you know, you talk about, you know, you've said, you know, you had a pretty good childhood. And these weren't things that were, you know, really alarming to you. And now that people are worried about that again, and and, these, and, and that, that's the tough thing that with interfaith marriage, like it promotes understanding. And yet, you know, as a, as a, a, a population, as a demographic that's small, and you know the studies, right? Like most people that inter- intermarry generationally will not be observant, right? Like, oh yeah. But it's yeah. so. I mean, it's not, how do you wrestle with that, right? Because you're a pretty cosmopolitan well, guy and has and have great interfaith relations and and work with interfaith couples and things, and yet this this is kind of threatening to the survival of Judaism. Very much so. Uh, and 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 my wife's a rabbi too, and she works almost exclusively with interfaith couples. I mean, that's her passion. So I think there's a couple of interesting approaches. So there are studies that indicate that, you know, interfaith families, especially over generations, really lose some of their Jewish practices and traditions. But there are also other studies that indicate if a community, it used to be that the Jewish community would turn away interfaith couples. They weren't welcome at synagogues. There, No rabbi would marry them, let alone talk to them. There was really a great resistance and a, and a, and a, and a sense of rejection. The view was probably up until the 1980s, the view was if you marry somebody not Jewish, that is your exit visa from the Jewish community. You know, that, that, that's you, you are literally leaving the Jewish community. And I think communities that have changed and that have been more welcoming to recognize, you know, this is a reality of American life in a place, a pluralistic culture where we live and go to college and and work with people that are different from us. People are going to fall in love and get married. And we should accept that and welcome that and 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 make synagogues inclusive and, and show the power of Judaism to transform people's lives and improve their lives, that more people will stay connected to Judaism. So there have been some studies that show that communities that really devote money and energy and train people in, in outreach and inclusivity are more successful and do keep people within the Jewish community. So I'm banking on that, that, that we can be more welcoming and keep people involved. And, um, and also just coming up with new, new ways of connecting people to Judaism. I mean, Birthright Israel has brought, you know, hundreds of thousands of young Jews to Israel, helping build connections. So there are ways of keeping that connection alive, even though we live in a different era. And I wonder how much of that also of the non-observance is that like if you have two people that are nominally observant right one's catholic or united methodist the other is you know jewish and they're already not very passionate people about faith well my guess is both of them are going to be less it's just going to but but my guess is that when you have people like your wife's working with if they're passionate if they're both passionate about faith uh they might even enrich each other's faith uh because they're passionate people Abs, I see that all the time. In fact, there's a wonderful documentary coming out. I, I should hook you up with the guy who's – it's called um, Leaps of Faith, and it's about this school. So there's this wonderful church, Catholic church in Chicago called Old St. Pat's Church, and it, 30 years ago, it got this new pastor. It was on the edge of downtown, horrible neighborhood, but the neighborhood started improving, and this um, priest really made it a a – center of Catholic life in Chicago. Now it's the biggest Catholic church. And they hosted this, what's called the family school, which was for families raising kids in both religions. And the family school just celebrated its 25th anniversary. And they produced this incredible documentary, hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's going to be on PBS about um, the students and the message that came out of this school. And uh, it's really remarkable what what it has done and, and the kind of um, depth of religious commitment among, you know, in a way they have no paid teachers or pastors. Each parent had to teach the religion. Each, the parents were teachers in the school. So if you wanted, if you cared about your child learning about your religion, you had to know and care about it too. So it actually improved or deepened the parent's sense of faith as so that they could pass it on to their children. I was recently listening to a Pod, the commentary magazine podcast with John Pan Horowitz, 
And they were talking about the recent Democratic resolution around, you know, condemning anti-Semitism and, and you know, the, the controversy, you know, that has arisen recently when the congresswoman from Minnesota had said some things. And he said that he made an interesting comment. He said, anti-Semitism is the canary in the coal mine yes. for Western society, that, that when that when this happens, that, you know, that it. Other terrible things are going to follow. That that it's it's an early sign of again a degeneration, a devolving into the tribalism, into some of the worst of our pre-modern past. You you resonate with that? One hundred percent. I agree with him. That's why the that's why I called the book first the Jews, because. Jews are the first, the hate that begins with Jews never ends with Jews. Jews are often the first target in a society that is, that is, 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 is growing in hate. Uh, and then that, that hate spreads to other peoples. That's why I'm, that's why I think the rise in anti-Semitism is kind of a sign of the growing tribalism that we're experiencing in America and around the world. So it is, it's a sign of worse things to come. And uh, th- that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is to just help is to warn people about it. You know, in Judaism, a prophet, it, it, you, you, somebody, a prophet is somebody who warns people about the future that a successful prophet, their prophecy doesn't come true. Even, isn't that strange? Like, that's the difference between an oracle, like the oracle at Delphi, you know, in Greek thought always, whatever the oracle said always came true. That was, you know, Oedipus Rex and so forth. But in Judaism, uh, a, a prophet was successful if they, if they, if they stopped something awful from happening. And so I yeah, hope Jonah's the great example of this, right? Yes. Tell the Ninevites that you're going to, you guys are going to be condemned yes. and they repent. Oh, wow. I didn't expect that. <laughs> right. And that makes him a successful prophet, but he's mad about it. So I, I hope I, I, I'm certainly no prophet whatsoever, nor the child, you know, but, but that this can, can help you know, stop this growing trend of anti-Semitism. And, and I, I mean, I gave a sermon. It was probably one of the best or best received sermons I've, I've ever given. I talked about anti-Semitism uh, at my congregation Friday night. Um, and, you know, I serve a very liberal uh, community. And I said, you know, liberal Democrats and progressives have to unequivocally condemn anti-Semitism right now in the strongest possible language. And if they don't, that's just going to mean more tribalism and more hate. And it's going to ultimately hurt the progressive causes that people in my congregation care about. And so um, I, I think it is. And if, if we don't stop anti-Semitism, then we're going to see more and more division. In your relationship with with Christians talking about these issues with Israel and anti-Semitism. You know, there seems to be a strange dynamic where the people that are the kinds of Christians that tend to be on the right side of the evangelical spectrum, like, you know, they tend to be more on the conservative side, tend to be friends of Israel and, and, and defenders of its rights. And, 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 you know, they are philo-Semites in that sense, right? And yet they're often the ones that are saying that, you know, that are most antagonistic religiously to Jews. Right. And then you get the liberal Protestants who also would see themselves many as Philo Semites in a different, in another way. But so they are, you know, they kind of see it as very taboo to evangelize a Jew or something. And yet they're the ones that often critique Israel's right to even exist. I mean, it's a strange tension, right? Between these two different kinds of friends. I mean, with friends like the, (laughs) it's a very, it's an interesting kind of dynamic, right? I know it is. It, it's it, it, it took me a while to to kind of make sense of it. Um, and, you know, I kind of the, the way I always look at it is I don't really question people's motives. You know, if somebody if somebody is pro Israel, even I, I, I will, you know, for whatever reason, they're pro Israel. It doesn't really matter to me. You know, if they believe that all, you know, that all Jews have to convert to Christianity and move to Israel for the Messiah to come. But in the meantime, they want to help Israel. Okay, you know, I may believe something different, but I'm not going to attack. I'm not going to not welcome somebody who's doing good work based simply upon beliefs that I disagree with. And and, and that, you know, some other rabbis would think differently. They would say, well, if somebody wants to convert me, I can't really ever have a conversation or give them any kind of legitimacy. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think in Judaism, actions are more important than beliefs. Deed matters more than creed. So I look at what people do. And 
for liberal Protestants, you know, a lot of the challenge is, is that same kind of siding with the underdog and, and, and focusing on issues of justice. And, and, you know, Israel is seen as this, as this oppressor and the Palestinians as an underdog. And I try to at least provide some kind of education or different perspective to understand, you know, what, what the real challenges are. So I think the challenges in working with each group are different, but I always just try to assume the best motives for each side. And that you know gets, I mean? that gets on the, on the, on the other, your other hat, the happiness pop psychology. Yeah. Like, I think the worst thing you can do is impute bad motives in any relationship. Like it's one thing to say, Hey, you didn't do the dishes or Hey, you forget. But when you say you really were trying to, you know, to shuck your response, you know, when you, when you, when you impute ill motives to people, it's so damaging to personal relationships. Right. And, and, and likewise to communal relationships. Yes. When, when you, assume ill motivations. It's just so debilitating. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's our problem in politics for now too, right? You know, everyone assumes the other side is just evil and awful. And, uh, and that's, if we, if, if people keep assuming that about other people, we're never going to achieve anything. I'm curious, you know, there's a, a, a I mean, it's certainly that I would guess Netanyahu will not be prime minister in a year, my guess would be. He, he's had a long tenure. Some of the scandals like, with the indictments and stuff. It just seems like, it, it, you know, any politician in a, in a, in a parliamentary or liberal democracy, right? You, you can't stay too long. And he's probably, you know, this is probably the beginning of the end, I would guess. Do you think that will offer a window to open up a window to a, a new kind of peace process. I mean, you know, we have the wonderkin Jared Kushner running around there. So, I mean, I'm sure that Jared is, you know, Jared's an expert in everything, but uh, I, I mean, I wonder in all seriousness, do, do we, do you think that that will, will, there'll be some, an open window for opportunity there? Yeah. You know, I do. I, I, I mean, I think he, Netanyahu's a, a polarizing figure in America and in Israel. And, you know, Israelis love him or hate him. And he's done some good and he's done some things that uh, that that a lot of people disagree with. Uh, and I think a new prime minister at least would – there could be an opportunity for a restart. Um, I don't know whether that new prime minister would succeed or not. I mean that's that's <laughs> that's – you know, Israel's had liberal prime ministers and conservative prime ministers. They've all tried and and nothing has ever really worked. So I don't know – how it would play out, but I do think it would at least give an opportunity for a restart. Um, the problem is the other side doesn't, you know, uh, Abbas has been there since 2006, you know, uh, you know, even earlier than that. So there's such long memories in history on both sides that, you know, I'm just the whole Israeli Palestinian situation. I, my, my, my optimism kind of ends there. It just doesn't seem like there's a way forward. Yeah, it's got to be one of the most complex geopolitical situations uh, on the planet. I mean, it, 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 yeah, I mean, right. I mean, this is something that, that is just incredibly complex. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's complex. And also it's something everyone knows that, you know, the, the solution is not hard to envision. People know there should be two states, roughly where the borders should be and how the governments can get along. It's just getting there is the hardest part. It's like, you know, you, you, you know what the what the journey, what, what the end of the journey is. But actually, the path to get there is impossible. Yeah. I wonder, do you think that I mean, it's funny how unintended consequences. Right. I mean, you I mean, a lot of foreign policy commentators, you know, and I'm in agreement with them on this, that, you know, who won the war in Iraq? Iran won that war. Right. Because it took. Iran's competitor and and destabilize them in Iran, but I yes. wonder. But I wonder if Iran. The the strange thing is that I wonder if Iran's kind of increase in power and influence might help Middle East peace because now you have you know the Saudis and the Israelis working together. So you know you have the because of people's fear of Iran. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, oh, I wonder. Yeah, the relationship. Yeah. That's right. That's right. If foreign policy has so many unpredicted consequences. So for sure, you know, the relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia is as strong as it's ever been, you know, and I think most of the sort of reasonable countries in the Middle East have accepted that Israel's going to exist uh, and and is, is a powerful state. But actually admitting that in public uh, is is not it's not in the cards right now. And when it'll be in the cards, I don't know if Netanyahu has anything to do with that. Um, I think it would be in the cards if we had a peaceful resolution of, of, between Israel and the Palestinians, but I don't know how we get there. 
Um, the Palestinians are a great pawn for Arab dictatorships too, because they can say, well, it's these evil Zionists that oppress our brothers in, in Palestine that make your life miserable. Meanwhile, they're, they're have total power and all the wealth in a country. So, uh, the Israelis make a convenient, a convenient scapegoat. So I, I, that, that's something hard to give up for some, for, for the Middle East. Speaking of scapegoating, you have, you have this chapter in the book, he Jewed Me Down, and you talk about Jews and money, and you talk about intersectionality and Jewish identity. And this is, it's so interesting, right? Because I think it seems like in, intersectionality descriptively is a very helpful thing, right? Oh my gosh, someone's a female and Latina and, you know, or they're, you know, black and have a disability. And so they have, you know, these complex forms of discrimination and struggle. But then it seems like it more and more becomes prescriptive. Where it says that, you know, you know, like I think of the women's march, right, where uh, the where Jewish women were kind of exclude, you know, where yes. there was all this tension because, well, you know, you're kind of white and you're oppressor because of the Palestinian issue. And this person is so you when you wind up is, is the real pain of this intersectionality stuff when it becomes prescriptive. And that's where it seems to be most hurtful to Jews when people start telling Jews that, you know, their their oppression and their struggle is not, you know, as authentic as some other suffering people groups. Right. When intersectionality becomes the only explanation we give for our identity, then that's that's a, an awful problem. Um, and I think that's that's the danger. Um, you assume somebody's white, so they're oppressive. Meanwhile, you know, in terms of privilege, I mean, President Obama's children have been extremely privileged and probably more privileged than somebody growing up in, you know, Appalachia, uh, you know, in a, in a horribly poor society surrounded by addictions. You know, you, you our, our skin color or our, our ethnicity or our religion can't explain everything about us. And so I think that's where intersectionality, it's trying to give this univocal explanation for who we are. And, and and it really focuses first and foremost on race and 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 class. And so Jews are kind of seen as oppressive outsiders or, or um, uh, the one percent, uh, uh, whereas our identities are so much more complex and, and complicated than that. Yeah. Intersectionality is is it's helpful for some and it's helpful and, and there's an element of truth to it. But when it becomes so political and divisive, that's when it's dangerous. Yeah, the irony is like it, it starts as a movement, right, to, to understand complexity. And then so often the way we see it wielded sometimes yes. is it becomes a, a, a tool of reduction and oversimplification sometimes. Yes. So, yeah, I think you just nailed it. It starts as a way of dealing with complexity and then becomes a simplistic uh, in itself. And that's that's. Um, that's sad but true, and I have a whole bunch of examples in the book of, of where intersectionality has really ended up devolving into anti-Semitism. So you grew up, you know, not feeling the stings of anti-Semitism. You kind of, later in life, you're seeing it, a resurgence. I mean, you're, you've written this book, but you're, again, you're also doing this forthcoming happiness uh, podcast, how, how ancient wisdom can really, you know, uh, ancient wisdom, the happiness hour, it's called ancient wisdom for everyday life. You're an upbeat guy. Are you hopeful for the future? I mean, do you think that this kind of right wing and left wing populism and the resurgence will quell and, and, and will go back to sort of better day or, or better days ahead? Do you think? Well, I do. I, I think we have to think that way. And I, I do, I think tribalism, I, I, I think we've faced difficult times before. You know, I gave a sermon during the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the big Jewish holidays, and I was talking about how divided America is right now, and it's the worst of times, and we're so polarized. And my dad, who is a baby boomer, is 72, and he said, you know, Evan, you know, things were pretty divided in the 60s, too. I remember it, and it was there were bombings. Things were really, really bad, and we got through that. So we've been through difficult times before. So I do think, now we always, sometimes we think, oh, this time is different, but I, I think we have the language, we have a system that can help us get through these difficult times. I think Israel is a extraordinary country, and um, I do think most Israelis want peace and most Palestinians want peace. I'm pessimistic on how we get there, but, but I do think the desire is there, and I think we will get there at some point. So I'm ultimately optimistic. Um, you know, and also, I mean, this comes back to faith, too. I'm a rabbi. And I think that in a way, the miracle 
Jews have survived so much. You know, this tiny people, 0.02% of the world population are still here. And so I think God has something yeah, to Car- do with it Car- too. Carl Barth says that, right? He was asked, you know, famously, like, hey, do you have any proof for God's existence? He says, absolutely. The Jews. Look at the Jews. Yes. yes. And so I, I do feel some sort of in my gut, in my, in my sense of faith that we'll get through this. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't have to act. You know, there's no such idea that, um, you know, we don't just let go and let God, you know, we, ha- we have to take an active role We're God's partners. That's this idea in Judaism, tikkun olam, we're God's partners in the work of creation. So that's why I wrote this book to try to, try to serve, try, try to fight this hate that I think is threatening, but which I ultimately think can be overcome. Well, I think for people who, who want to participate in that kind of healing of the world, they could do no better than to start with your book, First the Jews, Combating the World's Longest Running Hate Campaign. And, of course, when they tire of the work of justice, they can tune into the forthcoming Happiness Hour for the, for, you. For, for, you know, the spiritual uh, pep talk where you'll be giving ancient wisdom for everyday life. Thanks for writing the book and thanks for talking to me about it. Thanks. Thank you, my friend. This was wonderful. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Evan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, First the Jews. It's a great read. You will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. 